All right. Yesterday, I uh, took a trip to see my, my brother in um, western Wisconsin, uh, near the area where I grew up in. It was pretty fun going with my stepdad, and we actually drove by the, the farm that I spent most of my childhood days. And then we went over to my brother's place and just had a delightful time yesterday afternoon. And uh, as we were driving around, I've seen the cornfields. It reminded me when I was little, where at this time of year, we had some sweet corn in one area of our farm, and we would uh, take some time to pick out the, the corn and, and keep the really good stuff, the really good sweet corn for us. And then uh, the, the not-so-good corn, we would either just kind of discard or kind of put off the side or maybe uh, feed our cows with it. And I think in a similar way, it reminded me when I was uh, thinking about this passage this, this week, that we do the same thing when it comes to the Bible. You know, we, we choose the verses that we like, and uh, we hold on to those. But when it comes to passages like we're going to uh, come across this morning, we, we kind of skip those. We can't discard them because they make us uncomfortable. They confuse us. It doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what we see uh, this morning in Psalm 139, verse 19. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles. In fact, we'll start actually with verse 15 and circle back to um, uh, what we read last week. But Psalm 139, we've, if you're new here this morning, we've been in a sermon series in Psalm 139 called The Knowing God. And Psalm 139 is uh, written by King David. He's not, he's not king yet, but he's uh, writing about God's, uh, God all-knowing. It's one of the things he talks about. God, you know everything about me. And then also, uh, as we talked about in, in one of the sermons, is that God, you're always present. We don't need to pray for God to be in a place. He's already there. And that, that's, what Dave, that's what Brian was singing, is that it, wherever I go, Sheol or wherever, you're there. So God is, is all-knowing, he's, he's all-present, and he's all-powerful, as we talked about last week, in terms of that in, in humanity that we're uh, beautifully or fearfully made. And in, in verse, verse 15 of Psalm 139, let's pick it up. He watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. Then we jump ahead to verse 19. O God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. O Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred. Okay, so he, he doesn't just hate them. He hates them with total hatred. Okay? For your enemies are my enemies. Okay, now how do you preach on that? Mike, you, you want to preach this? I mean, how do you preach on this? This, this, is, this is why sometimes pastors will we'll do like topical messages because when you go verse by verse, you're forced to deal with some uncomfortable stuff. And this has been a tough week for me, honestly. What do you do with this? Do we say, oh, it's just figurative, it's, it's poetry. He doesn't really mean that. Well, no, he actually does mean this. Um, you know, how do you, how do you wrestle with, and, and the title of the message, I think, is, is very fitting. Verses that we skip. Because we don't want to read this stuff. Uh, it, it really uh, confronts us. It causes tension in, uh, for us. So this morning, what I want to do is, I want to walk through and how we can interpret this. 
how we can read these verses and understand what David is talking about when it comes to these kind of passages, because this is not the only occurrence of this. Perhaps you've seen this throughout the Bible. Maybe that's one of the reasons why you left church or don't read the Bible anymore. You read this, it's like, this guy, this guy is like unbalanced, you know? I mean, he's got, he's got a temper problem or something like that. But 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul reminds us all Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture, including verses 19 through 22, is God-breathed and helpful for us for teaching and conviction and for the training of righteousness. And I believe that's the case here too, and I'm going to help us to do that this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, we give thanks this morning for your word, and we give thanks for tough passages like this as well. We come across something like this that, um, that causes perhaps confusion for us or maybe uh, frustration that we would read such words. Uh, God, I pray that you would guide us, that you would help us to understand, bring clarity for us, for those of us who are new to the Bible, that we would come to understand more about Scripture. And God, whatever we do, we're here to glorify your name and worship you. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Everybody said? Amen. All right. So you have your teaching notes. I want to encourage you to follow along with this. Um, but as we, as we dive into this, the, the, what, what, what I want to do is sort of talk about that tension. The reason why there's tension is because we read this, and then what uh, Christians, and I would say pretty much most of, of uh, world religions, is that you're to love your enemies, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies, uh, bless those who persecute you. So we read that in the New Testament. That's very much a part of our worldview, our understanding of reality. We're to love our enemies. We do that all the time. I preach many times on that. And then yet, you come to this passage, and he's saying, God, slay them. So we have a seemingly contradiction here, okay? This tension between the, the, these sort of, like, it seems like two polar opposites. But there really isn't, and I'm going I'm to clarify that this morning, how we can interpret this. If, first of all, context. Think about context. We can interpret this in terms of the context, because these are not the only verses in the Bible like this, as I mentioned before. Psalm 7, 35, 55, 58, 59, 69, 79, 109, 119, and 137 all contain these kind of words. And they're called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. It's a great, great Scrabble word, by the way. Uh, imprecate means to invoke evil or call up evil upon somebody. And that was something in that day in the Old Testament, we're talking B.C. days, that they would do at times. And there was actually a genre of Jewish writing, a, a, a sort of form of writing was to ask God to uh, bring his wrath and bring his punishment upon them. But notice this. Even though David is doing this, he uh, uh, circles back to make sure that it's not something that he has a bias or a vendetta. Check out verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So after he says this, he says, you know, check me out. God, make sure this is not coming from a certain area of my life. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything to me that offends you, okay? So this is not an unbalanced person. He's talking about a certain group of people that are engaging in evil things. David asked God to punish them, but at the same time, David is accountable to God. Um, before you take these passages and start praying them towards your enemies, 
we come to sections of the Bible, and I hope you remember this. When I, I teach Bible at Bethel University, it's one of the first things I say is that when it comes to the Bible, there is descriptive and there's prescriptive. There's parts of the Bible where the writer is describing something, and, and it's describing it. For example, Noah building an ark. Okay, he's just got, you know, the writer is describing Noah building the ark and the number of years it took. And then there also there's passages that are prescriptive as well. They're, they're descriptive, but also God is prescribing something. He's not prescribing something, for example, when we read Noah's ark to, for you to go spend the next 40 years of your life uh, building an ark in your backyard, right? Uh, or other passages where uh, David, David is killing, you know, he's, he's taking on Goliath, and that's a describing a historical event. You're not supposed to go out and buy a slingshot at Cabela's, right? And go take on somebody who's a giant in your life or something, okay? So that's not prescriptive. In the same way, I would say this prayer is more descriptive. It's, this, this is not something that, that we're being prescribed to go pray towards our enemies. That's God's job, okay? But let's dig into this in terms of context. Um, the next thing we can do is how we can interpret this passage is in terms of views on evil. I would say ancient views on evil. Okay? Back in that day, when you uh, did, dealt with these kind of words, the imprecatory psalms, and you wrote things like this, what you were doing too, directly you were showing your devotion to God. That may seem weird to you, but back in that day, in David's day, when you wrote these kind of words, you were saying, I am for God. I am devoted to God. I am loyal to God. Okay? That was one, one view on evil, and that's, they would demonstrate that by, by writing these things and saying, I am for God. Okay? Secondly, they were commanded to stay away from evil things. Let's take a look at Psalm 97. Psalm 97.10. And we'll see where uh, people of Israel were encouraged to love the Lord and hate evil. That's what it says in Psalm 97.10. You, you who love the Lord hate evil. So that was something ingrained in the Jewish mindset during this time was to hate evil. Okay? And we turn over to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5 verse 14. It's way in the back of your Old Testament. It says this, Do what is good and run from evil, evil so that you may live. And that's a very, very important point because they actually, they believe that. Run away from evil. So they were to love God and they were to stay away from evil, evil at all costs. Because for them, in their uh, understanding of reality, their worldview, it was very binary. Right, wrong, good, evil, on, off, light, dark, night. You know, it was very much no gray zone really in the Jewish mindset. And that is something for us that we can glean, that we can apply for our lives. Perhaps you and I too many times get in the gray zone, in the middle ground, and that's where we, get, we make bad decisions. That's where we get into trouble with our lives. Because so often we've kind of broken away from such a, a, a you know, binary view of life, and we have this middle zone. And perhaps with temptation and, and decisions that we make is that we're, we're kind of in that middle area, and we start to dabble with things. And perhaps these verses mean something for us. Run away from evil. Stay away from evil. Because that introduces us to another Jewish thought as well, is that they see and, and believed that evil was like a virus. And I'm not exaggerating. 
They, felt, they, they believed that if you came in contact with evil or evil people, you would actually, in a sense, contract it, like the Zika virus in Rio right now. Athletes who've chosen not to participate in the Olympics because of the Zika virus is, is very similar to the Jewish understanding of evil, that if you came into contact, not only could you sort of get infected with this evil, but also more importantly than them, because they were so community-based, that your family and the Israelite community would all of a sudden have evil within their midst. So that's why you see this emphasis over and over and over about God, get rid of these wicked people. Okay? This is not a personal vendetta. This is not a personal malice. If you notice, for example, in Psalm 139, these are God's enemies. Okay? That's clear. It's not David's personal enemies. David does not have a vendetta. If you look at his track record, for example, you would know that. Twice he had opportunities to kill King Saul, who was an enemy of his. And twice he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's up to God. Okay? So this is not a personal vendetta. Also, another view on evil uh, comes in terms of what they believed in the Old Testament around the afterlife. And there wasn't a lot uh, views on heaven and hell hadn't been developed yet. I'm not saying they didn't believe in that, but it wasn't explicit and it wasn't emphasized as, as much in terms of the afterlife. Uh, we see some prophecies around judgment, but we, that wasn't really developed though until the New Testament. So in David's day, they didn't want these evil people to get away scot-free because they didn't really know about or think about the judgment day. For example, uh, when, when Hitler committed suicide, you know, a, a lot of Christians at that time said, you know what? He's going to face uh, the Creator. There's going to be a judgment day for him. Back in David's day, they didn't really em- emphasize that or talk about that much. That's why you see them say, God, take care of this right now. Uh, where they're pretty much praying for, you know, fire from heaven to come down on these evil people. Okay? If I sound a little bit academic this morning, I apologize. But I just want to kind of give you an understanding of really why these, these words are written the way they are. Okay? Also, another way that we can interpret this, and this is a big one, is the fact of they're standing up for God. They're standing up for God. You'll see this quote in the slide behind me. In David's days, the anxious, the anxious question whether the wicked may rule forever was therefore very real in those days. God's majesty and honor were at stake. So this is about God's name. This is about David, uh, perhaps in, in strong language that you're not comfortable with, but he's standing up for God. He's standing up for God's honor and his majesty. If you notice in the passage, in our translation, it says that these people are misusing your name. And that actually is a reference to the third commandment. Uh, Thou shall not take the Lord God's name in vain. And actually what that really means is people who misuse or miscarry the name of God. That's really what that command, commandment means. And oftentimes we think, it, we think it's about swearing. But it's actually about more of how you live or how, if you misuse God's name or miscarry God's name with your life. And that's what these people were doing. And as such, David is standing up for God, and he is saying, God, I'm standing up for you and for your honor. And that was a big deal. And that should be a big deal for us, too. Maybe it's a joke in the office, in the cubicles, or in your workplace, or maybe it's, it's somebody who, who slams God or insults God or insults Jesus. And, and maybe you're one of those people that oftentimes refrain from saying anything 
Maybe the time as you think about these words here this morning is that you stand up. And you stand up and say, no, that's my God. You're not going to insult my God that way. It's exactly what David's doing. He's standing up for God's honor and majesty. It reminds me of the story of a girl in Texas named Jordan Woosley. This happened this past year where she had a class assignment in her, class, in her, in her middle school by her teacher to prove that God is real, that God is alive. And it was not only her, but also her entire class, and they wrote an essay on it. And then the next, a couple days later, the, the teacher in the class uh, went one by one through their different arguments on what the students believed that made God real. For Jordan Woosley, it was the fact that we have a Bible, and we have had people who've actually died and gone to heaven and come back. And one uh, response after another, the teacher said, you're wrong. That's all made up. God is not real. Okay, this is in a public classroom in Texas. And Jordan Woosley, it, it really struck her that she couldn't believe her teacher was telling her that God, the God that she worships, the God that she loves, is not real. And the teacher went on to say, God is dead. God, God is not alive. It's a myth. Jordan was moved so much so, and she had a couple of friends that went home crying because they love God, just like David. And Jordan went, went home, and she talked to her mom about it. And then Jordan said, there's a school board meeting in a couple of days. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to speak. Seventh grader. Can you imagine that? And she went to this school board meeting, and they gave her an opportunity to speak, and she shared what happened. And she said, I love God, and I am standing up for him. I'm paraphrasing. And uh, the board actually applauded her and thanked her for her courage. Do you and I have that courage? I mean, that was, that was this, this intimidating forum. You know, Jordan had a couple of friends that were about to speak with her. They got scared at the last moment, so she was by herself talking to the school board. Do you and I have that, that courage to stand up for God, for his honor and his majesty? How far are you and I willing to go? Because when I come across this passage with some really difficult words, but at the same time, it convicts me that I need to stand up for God more. Okay? I'm not talking about bumper stickers. I'm not talking about t-shirts, okay? I'm talking about with our lives and with our words is standing up for God and for us to do that individually. And again, maybe it's those spheres of influences that we have in our, in our world that where we can stand up for God, not in an offensive way, you know, not to put somebody down, but actually in a loving way, is to say, this is my God. And we have 10 uh, candidates for baptism today. That's exactly what they're doing. They're standing up for God. They're saying, I'm going public with my faith. I love God. I believe that he's real. And I want to be baptized today. And also for us as a church community, Maple Grove Covenant Church, are we willing to have the courage to step out and say that we believe in God and we are going to reflect his image in Maple Grove and Osseo and Rogers and the surrounding areas? Are we the kind of people that are going to be courageous to, to do that uh, in a world that is broken? And I don't have to remind you of that. You know that. In a world that is very dark and very broken right now, will you and I in this church be a light, a beacon of light in this area? These are things that we can apply, for, apply in our lives. And not only we see the courage of Jordan, but also we see the, the courage of a, the Apostle Paul and the risk that he took in his life. 
And for example, in 2 Corinthians, you have uh, the verses behind me, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 24. He says, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So if my math is correct, that's 39, right? Anybody, can anybody write that, do the math for me? It's 30, 39, five times. Okay, when Jesus was flogged, if you saw the passion of the Christ, probably 39 times. That was once. Paul got it five times. You imagine that. These are leather strips with, you know, uh, shells or pieces of glass, sharp metal tied to them. Can you imagine that? Five different times where he was, he was, uh, his, his, his back was flayed. And um, you think about that happening to Paul, and you can kind of imagine the scene where they, they say to him, okay, you've done your part, now throw him out. And that's what they usually did after a flogging. they throw him out there, and his back is exposed. He's got open skin, and typically dirt would get into, that, into those cuts and in those wounds, and oftentimes they would get infected. And perhaps Paul got a fever for a week, and, and maybe people wondered if he was going to survive. And a few months later, his, his back gradually healed. And they didn't know anything about stitches or bacteria or anything like that. So the, the um, possibility of not doing well and not surviving is very high. This happened once, twice, three times. I would think at, after three times, Paul would be like, okay, I, I'm done with this. You know, three times is enough. But he went all the way five different times. And he did it for God's name. He stood up for God. He stood up for Jesus and would not give up. Will you and I have the courage of a Jordan Woosley or the, the risk, taking the risk like, like Paul, to stand up for our God and to stand up for Christ? All right. I just want to close with just some bullet points. You can write these down um, because I— Obviously, there's no way I could answer every question when it comes to hard passages like this. In seminary, we call these hard sayings. So it's called hard sayings because they're hard, they're difficult. And in no way, uh, please hear me on this. I don't want to simply gloss this over. You walk away thinking, oh, you know, three, he's got three answers to it, boom. That's all I needed. No, it's a lot more difficult than that. I want to provide at least a few responses. There's a lot more to this. There's been a lot of study on this. But even with that, Quite honestly, they're still tough sayings. They're hard to deal with, very difficult, and they challenge us. But some things that we can do with these passages, for, for example, they express an ethical concern for righteousness and that righteousness, the righteous way of living would win out. Also, praise and worship of God, as I mentioned, is standing up for God. Also, God's concern for justice and that he rules as earth's judge. Both the righteous and the wicked will know that God is concerned with justice. And we heard Maddie talk about uh, issues of justice and what she's trying to do and fight against the injustice that's, that's taking place in the world. And we believe in worship of God who is concerned with justice and he executes his judgment on the earth. Also, these verses express God's sovereignty. Okay, ultimately, this whole... Uh, prayer that, that David has, he lays at the feet of God. Also a desire that the wicked would not enjoy the same blessings as the righteous. And lastly, a hope for the wicked to seek the Lord. And we don't see that in David's passage, but we see this in the other Psalms that, that use similar language. For example, the psalmist Asaph, he prays that God would judge and humi humiliate his enemies so that they would seek his name and acknowledge him as the sovereign God. So I would say this, for the enemies that you have in your life, 
is to pray that, that God would get a hold of them in some way, in a way that would cause them to seek him and to love him and to have a relationship with him. Let me pray. Father God, we do pray for those who are spiritually lost, people in our lives that may be enemies, and we pray that they would come to seek you. We pray that they would come uh, through whatever circumstance that you bring about in their lives, that they would come to know you and have faith, faith in you. So God, help us as we come across these tough passages to ask questions and to dig in and not simply skip over them and, and go to the choice verses that, that we like, but actually to allow it to create some dissonance in our lives, cause us to kind of stay, uh, take a step back and, and ask, why is this in the Bible? It doesn't sound right. And as we ask those questions, that you'll give us insight and clarity. And God, we pray for our world right now. We pray for our world, and we pray for uh, missionaries like Maddie and others that are trying to be a light. They're giving their all. They're taking risks. They're being courageous to be a light in this world for you in your name, for your honor and your majesty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.